Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 232. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Lord, here we are once again, ready to open our hearts and open our ears to hear your words and to meditate on them and to allow the Spirit to activate them inside of us, in our spirits, in our hearts, in our minds. Indeed, without his help, well, why study? <laughs> if we can't study in order to do, in order to teach like Ezra did. Thank you for this opportunity to share with uh, like-minded students all around the world through this uh, via this medium of the internet and to um, connect to one another and to be able to fellowship and to share with one another and to pray for one another. Help us, Lord, to continue to prepare our hearts for the high holy festivals, which are right around the corner. Uh, at the time of this recording, we've really got just about, about a week or two, maybe two at the most, uh, left before we enter into the fall feasts with the first one, Rosh Hashanah, or Yom Tov, the day of the awakening trumpet blast, which is typified uh, by the blowing of the shofar, to signal awaken O sleeper the idea is that we as human beings are prone to fall asleep and not be ready to hear god's voice not be ready to meet the king of glory as he comes in as he comes and brings his um, entourage as he enters into our location and makes his presence known well we need to be awake when the king returns so help us lord to have the right posture and the right heart attitude help us to uh continue to um be a people who are uh circumspect as as it's written in the new testament uh being wise not as fools redeeming the time because the days are evil and so help us lord to continue to seek opportunities to share our witness with other people those around us who haven't yet heard this good news that yeshua the messiah can and will save them and bring them into a relationship with his father so thank you for these studies and what they represent be with me as i teach the material that i've studied this week give me recall help me to have some clarity and to present a message that is challenging and yet at the same time encouraging and uh, easy to understand. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory, but shame Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining me during these live internet studies. My name is Arlen Lyman Hanavi, and I'm bringing you an hour and a half long worth of teaching that's broken up into two parts. Segment one is an, is a, um, an hour long given over to a study entitled Eschatology of Biblical Study of End Time Events where we're talking about basically uh, eschatology, end-time studies. It's really a study on the book of Revelation. We're just kind of working our way towards that using these different topics that um, I'm going to mention to you in a moment. The second half-an-hour study, sometimes it goes over, but it's supposed to be half an hour, is given over to an apologetic study on a Trinity topic. It's entitled A Trinitarian Response to Biblical Unitarianism. And we've been embarking on a an intense it, it really is a deep dive into psalm 110 verse 1 and so i hope you're enjoying that study we're just kind of taking it slowly and not rushing our way through the material so looking at your screen right now let's turn to es eschatology the eschatology study as you can see now we finally made it through topic seven excursus the islamic antichrist per joel richardson and now we're ready to start on a new topic tonight i don't know how long this will go as with all the other topics um 
these were originally written for a study that I did over 20 years ago. It's coming up on 25 years now since I did the original study. And so each topic was actually written to encompass only a week's worth of teaching, right? But since this is the age of the internet, YouTube, iPod, uh, uh, iTunes, and things like that, I can go as long as I want. So topic eight, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse Part One, and then that'll push us right into topic nine, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse Part Two. So we'll start in topic eight, uh, part one tonight with uh, the notes from a study that I wrote. Let's get back up to the top there. There we go. On a study that I wrote, um, entitled an, an, an eschatological essay on matthew 24 1 through 51 and the olivet discourse and as i mentioned we're only going to deal with part one so it'll, i think it's broken up right in the middle like 24 verses 1 through 24 something like that and the 25 through 51 something like that so let's just jump right in i'll start reading and I'll pause whenever I need to make comment, but otherwise, the, the, the essay is fairly self-explanatory. It's short enough that I left myself space to um, read the verse and then uh, make some commentary. When we get down into the verse-by-verse -verse section after the, after the introduction and all of the other historical background and things like that, there's a little chart in here also. When we get down to the verse-by-verse -verse section, again, you'll see it's pretty short. Um, if I ever rewrite this and turn it into a book or upload it to my internet and uh, to my website or anything like that, I'll probably expand all the verse by verse sections. But originally, when I wrote this, it was just like I said, I just I needed to make it really short so that I could teach it in a week. So you'll you'll be able to tell that when you take a look. All right, let's jump right in. An eschatological essay on Matthew twenty four one through fifty one and the Olivet Discourse. Introduction. The Olivet Discourse, recorded in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, represent a crucial eschatological teaching by Jesus. Given its occurrence on the Mount of Olives, this discourse is emblematic of Christ's intimate moments of instruction with his disciples. By the way, it's called the Olivet Discourse because Yeshua actually gave the discourse while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking back at the Temple Mount and all of its buildings and things like that. We'll see that as we get to verse 1. So we're not really going to read through all of Matthew 24, 1 through 51, just in one reading. What we're going to end up doing is we'll read verse by verse, and it'll be, like I said, a kind of a miniature exegetical study or commentary essay on each little section or on each verse so we will end up reading it but not just in one setting i recommend that you go back and read it on your own as we're, we're going to find out here in a moment the story the narrative is found in all in all of the synoptic gospels so matthew mark and luke it does not show up in john and i've chosen matthew for a specific reason although mark and luke have their own slightly different way of telling the same story and Luke is particularly interesting in that, in that it parallels some details that have to do with more of the preterist perspective. We'll get to that in a moment as well. Let's go back. Let's keep reading. Shared similarities, as I mentioned, across the gospel accounts underscore its significance. In Matthew 24, the discourse is a response to the disciples' query about the temple's destruction 
the sign of Christ's coming, and we're going to see this when we get to it. So it's it's they're, they're asking about some specific things. They have specific questions. So they're asking about the temple's destruction, the, time, the sign of Yeshua's return, and the end of the age. Mark 13 echoes these themes, focusing on the future tribulations and false prophets. Luke's version in 21, 5 through 38 emphasizes the disciples' inquiry about the temple's downfall, and it uh, expands into signs preceding the second coming. So, taken as a whole, we know that it was really one event, at least we suspect that it was one event, where he was chatting with his disciples, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and yet each Synoptic, uh, synoptic gospel writer records slightly different details, giving us kind of the, the, the whole picture when we sew it all back together. But, uh, and I'm not going to deal with this right now, but I'll, I'll talk about it maybe either between the two topics or I'll talk about it after we deal with the second topic. I haven't decided which one I want to do. But in Luke's rendering, when we get to Luke 21, we'll find that there are a lot of details given that are really relevant for what we call the near-term aspect of Yeshua's words. Remember, and I'll flash a little graphic on the screen afterwards in, in post-production for you to see this. When we talk about prophetic telescoping and we're dealing with end-time prophecy, or really any, any kind of prophecy in the Bible, it's not unusual to find overlapping themes that represent a near-term event, like near to the writer, is as in chronologically near maybe something that was right around the corner and then a far-term event which is much farther in the future could be hundreds of years or in this case it's almost 2000 years later than yeshua spoke the words so in using the near-term or prophetic telescoping kind of template when we look at yeshua's words here in matthew it's sent or in the all of the discourse matthew mark and luke what we end up finding is that there were events that he was talking about that are relevant for the immediate siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the expulsion of the Jews from Jerusalem in one in the 130s. Most of this would have been in the one in the 70s, the destruction of the temple. So when we um, examine Matthew and Mark and compare it to Luke, we find that Luke has more details that are relevant to the 70 AD event and the siege of Jerusalem versus Matthew and Mark seem to have more event more details that are relevant to, for what we would consider to be the final end time siege on Jerusalem the rise of the antichrist the uh, ushering of the great tri tribulation which then gives rise to um, the wrath of god being poured out on wicked humanity etc cetera, etc cetera, i.e. the 70th week of daniel so that's really when we compare the three, what we end up uh, finding. In order to see this the, and appreciate the full scope of what Luke adds to the discussion when compared to Matthew and Mark, what, when the time comes, I may back up in Luke to chapter 17 and show you how there are some parallel details that either represent kind of a, a separation between words that Yeshua spoke at that time, but got separated in the chapters between 17 and 21, or, as in many um, Bible authors believe, Yeshua simply had a similar discussion at a different time with his disciples, and yet the wording is similar to chapter 21 in Luke. So, 
It's not, it may be the Olivet Discourse, it may not be, but either way, it's directly tied into details concerning the immediate siege that's right around the corner from Yeshua and the Disciples' Day. That's Luke 17. All right, let's keep reading my um, commentary here, my essay. The Olivet Discourse employs apocalyptic language. You guys know what I mean when I say apocalyptic? We're talking about, let me just highlight it here and, and see if it gives me a, a definition. Here we go. Apocalyptic. It's an adjective describing or prophesying the complete destruction of the world, right? Resembling the end of the world. So when we say apocalyptic, we're talking about something that's grandiose, something that's all sweeping, which again, keeping in mind that we're using near-far prophetic terminology in the Bible, we can have overlapping terminology that can get dual usage. So Yeshua can be talking about when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, like in Luke 21, we're going to read those words. When you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, well, when did that happen? Well, it happened in 70 AD, but it's going to happen again at the end of the age during Daniel's 70th week. So Yeshua only spoke once, but because of the apocalyptic nature of his of his discourse, then the prophecy gets dual application. Short, small, uh, shorter, closer to when Yeshua spoke him, near aspect, and then farther, um, complete, uh, final fulfillment, closer to the days that we live in now. So that's what we mean by near, far, our prophetic telescoping, and the uh, apocalyptic language works both works for both um, uh uh, time periods. Let's keep reading. So we got the Olivet Discourse employs this apocalyptic language, just like the book of Revelation, and imagery, and it accentuates the necessity of spiritual readiness amidst impending upheavals. The discourse, I go on to say, serves as a prophetic insight into the climax of history, cautioning against deception, and we're going to see this when we start reading Yeshua's words, um, encouraging perseverance, and reminding believers of Christ's eventual return for judgment and restoration. Now, this is interesting. For, let, me, let me pause again just real quick. When we begin to read through Yeshua's words, we end up with the sense that there's this urgency of the matter. And indeed, the first century disciples and, and, and uh, authors of the New Testament, Paul included, had this general sense that when Yeshua spoke about his second return, about his, you know, his second coming, they really had the general sense that he might be returning at any moment. It, um, perhaps he was indicating some form of imminency, meaning I could return, but there are events that are associated with my return. And because you don't know when those events are going to take place, then you just need to be ready at any moment for these events to unfold and then my return to happen. So, on the one hand, I don't believe Yeshua was trying to say that I could return even before the day finishes. You know, I'm going to go up into heaven, then in a blink of an eye, I'm going to come back down. And you you couldn't even imagine that it was just going to be that fast. I don't think that's what he was talking about when, he, when we discussed this topic of imminency, right? The imminency of Yeshua's return. Rather, there are definitely events that are going to set up the return of Yeshua. Indeed, uh, when we start reading through Matthew, we're going to find that he uses these time markers, these this kind of sort of chronology where, where he keeps saying, when you see these things, and after that, after those things, after this, um, then this will happen, then this will happen. So, it's, it moves along 
sequentially in a natural fashion. And, and he also, at a few points, says, you know, uh, he gives details and he says, but the end is not yet. And so if his return is coupled with the end of the age, like he was teaching, then surely his return is not altogether imminent. And yet, and this is the point I'm really trying to highlight, his return is certain. It will happen. And so rather than teaching eminency, it's really best to just understand that Yeshua was teaching expectancy. So we don't have to think that, well, he could come even before I finish out tomorrow. Because we have to take a look around at all the other events that he described would happen and ask ourselves, is it time yet? And he even gives a parable. He says, you know, learn the parable from the fig tree. Learn the parable from, uh, you know, when a storm is coming. You don't, you don't just expect it to start raining out of a blue sky. You don't expect um, the fig tree to just... Uh, blossom uh, in the middle of winter or something like that. There are definite warning signs or uh, a way for you to tell when a certain season is near, when a storm is approaching, etc., etc. So that's why I said eminency is not really the best way to interpret his words, rather expectancy, especially as the event that he's going to be describing, that we're going to be reading about, start happening all around us we're talking about all kinds of political unrest nations we're going to war against nations all kinds of earthquakes in diverse places cosmic signs in the heavens and the earth the sun the moon stars etc etc um the persecution of believers for the name of yeshua and that he's going to warn us about the false christ uh you know the wars rumors wars all these kinds of things so these are the signs that will precede the end of the age and the return of yeshua and that's why we should have expectancy and not necessarily eminence right um, having said all that, there is going to be a time when, at some point, after all the signs have um, manifest themselves, that his return truly is imminent, but not before then. All right, so just wanted to kind of drop that nugget into your mind uh, right away so we can kind of be prepared for it. Let's keep reading my own essay. Through these parallel accounts, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Olivet Discourse remains a pivotal discourse urging believers across time to heed its timeless exhortations. As I keep uh, scrolling here, for the purposes of this short essay, I say we will be focusing our attention solely on Matthew's account. And again, it's just for brevity's sake. I, when I originally wrote these studies, I didn't have but but a week to really teach them. They were taught live at my own congregation at Kehilatnuba in uh, Colorado. So I only had a week. They were like each study was like like fourteen weeks or something like that. And so I only had. Um, Really, one night each week was like one evening, so an hour or so to teach each topic. So that's why everything's so short. All right, let's keep reading this essay that I wrote. Matthew 24 is a chapter that has been the subject of much debate and discussion among scholars and theologians. We'll find out here why. It contains Jesus' teachings about the end times, including the signs of his coming and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And um, if you consider that the when you're looking at the end times prophecies, then Israel is at the center of God's end time 
prophetic timetable. God sets its clock using uh, what he's doing with Israel. And so we keep an eye on Israel uh, at any given epic or time of a period in history so that we can get a sense of what God is doing in the earth because uh, the Bible is Israel-centric. And yet within Israel, the center of activity in Israel is uh, Jerusalem. So once again, we keep our eye on Israel, but we keep our eye on Jerusalem because that's the center of activity that's going to alert us to the events that are unfolding that would indicate the second coming of Yeshua, the rise of Antichrist, the um, rebellion of wicked mankind, and then eventually the ushering in of Yeshua's millennial kingdom. So Jerusalem is the epicenter there. And then within Jerusalem, it's the temple. It's the temple itself. So you can see we're working our way inwards in concentric centrals. We start at concentric circles. We go from uh, out from broad looking broadly looking at Israel to zooming in and looking at Jerusalem and to zooming in one more time and looking at the temple. So with that um, focus, we can instantly begin to realize that as Yeshua is having this discussion with his disciples, it's no wonder why as they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives, gazing across the Kidron Valley, looking west towards Jerusalem, right? So if you remember what the uh, layout of um, Israel and Jerusalem looks like, you got the Temple Mount on one side and then the Kidron Valley separating the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives on the east side. So the Temple Mount's, Temple Mount's on the west side, Kidron Valley running right down the middle. Um, Mount of Olives on the east side, and they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives looking west back across the Kidron Valley towards Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And he's describing all these events that are going to unfold uh, in the end times, again, 70 AD and the 70th week, so both events. And yet a lot of his focus is on the Temple Mount itself, right? Talking about the destruction. In fact, right away, right out of the gate, um, the, the disciples start talking about, oh, how beautiful the Temple is, and all the stones and everything. And Yeshua's like, well, uh, you know, they're going to be turned upside down, right? Everything's going to fall apart at some point. All right, so that's... Um, Another perspective we need to keep in mind. Let's keep reading my little essay. In this two-part essay, I say, we will examine the different interpretations of this chapter, right, chapter, 51, chapter 24 of Matthew, and explore its significance for Christians today. Again, it's a two-parter. Uh, topic 8 is uh, part 1, and then topic 9 is part 2. And I just broke them up here for this um uh, study because originally I didn't have very much time to teach them, so I had to break it up into two parts. I go on to say that we will also take special notice of how Jesus' words here in Matthew are precisely paralleled in his revelation to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, chapter 17. And this is very important as well. I This, this part right now is not a deep dive, although this study will include a chart that we're going to see here that will show these very important parallels between what Yeshua says in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts when compared against the book of Revelation chapter 6 and 7, dealing with the seven seals on the outside of the scroll that we talked about earlier. So when we get to that part, I want you to pay careful attention to how these two narratives, these two eschatological 
stories or details and chapters in the in the Bible uh, parallel one another on purpose. It's not an accident. It's not mere coincidence. Number one, it's the same author, right? Yeshua in both places. And number two, it's God and His Holy Spirit who have authored these details for us so that we can be prepared. So what? Yeshua tells his disciples before the 70 AD account is mirrored by or paralleled by what he tells John, which is, in my understanding, after the 70 AD event, which means even though there's some parallel between the chapters, we realize that the 70, the, um, 70 AD destruction of the temple has already taken place by the time John starts pinning his words. And so most of John's, in fact, all of John's details are now future facing. And then, but but we're still operating under the idea that it's the same author, Yeshua gave these same words, and yet there are parallels because of the prophetic telescoping nature of apocalyptic literature. Did I just confuse anyone? I hope I didn't. All right. This will make more sense once we get into it. All right. And as I mentioned in this last part, uh, part one, as I mentioned, covers verses 1 through 24, while part two will cover verses 25 through 51. I got a typo there. Part one will covers. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay. Just ignore that part. All right. So historical context. Let's look. Just This is real quick. I mean, it, it blink and you'll, you're going to miss it. This isn't uh, uh, this part isn't really a deep dive. The historical context of Matthew 24. Matthew 24 takes place during the last week of Jesus' life, just before his crucifixion. Uh, he's in Jerusalem, I say, with his disciples, and they are discussing the temple and its destruction. So it's that whole thing that I just mentioned about. Um, Jerusalem, and then you zoom in, and then, I'm sorry, Israel, then you zoom in, then it's Jerusalem, then you zoom in a little bit more, and it's the temple that's uh, the, the, the um, center of focus. I just go on to say that Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them about the end times and what they can expect before his return. Yeah, pretty short. I didn't feel the need at the moment to turn this into a history lesson, although if you want to go deeper into the history of um why Yeshua had this discussion with them on the mount right there, well, you can do so on your own. Let's talk a little bit about interpretations, because this is going to drive how we understand what these words mean and how they impact us and how we can um, look for a practical application for our very lives. Because, again, what it boils down to is, if the words that Yeshua gave us in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse, if those words were already 100% filled up in the 70 AD destruction of the temple, like the preterists say, like we're going to read about here in a moment, well then, as we get to John's Revelation, we also have to force chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Revelation into that same preterist mind frame and again the indeed and indeed the predators well, at least the hyper or full-blown predators do this they just take most of the book of revelation indeed i think all of it and they just say it's really all done done it's done away with it creates really manifold challenges in my opinion so let's begin to look at these interpretations and so we'll just jump right into it right here we've talked about this by the way briefly in the past but because of the nature of what we're going to be looking at, I thought it worth um, reminding us. There are several different interpretations I mentioned of Matthew 24, and scholars have debated its meaning for centuries. Here are some of the most 
common interpretation. So I'm going to list four, and I've got a little graphic on the screen that I can, uh, not on the screen now, but I can flash it later on in post-production that shows these four. Um, right, the preterist. Well, I won't mention them. Yet. You'll just, uh, just, you'll see them here in a moment. So just pay attention. Whichever version you go with. Um, it's on you. I, I'm not going to try and force you to hold to a different position, although I am going to make a case for one position over the other that I think makes the most sense and is the best way to understand the material that we're dealing with. I am going to um, try and um, emphasize that and make a push for it, but in the end, it truly doesn't matter, as I understand, which position you hold to because what matters most is if you're a genuine Christian. If you genuinely know the true Messiah, the true, the true Christ, Yeshua himself. If you have a relationship with him and the Holy Spirit has taken up residency inside of you, right? the Spirit of God lives in you, and you're a student of the Word, and you are um, availing yourself of God's revelation to you during these, uh, these days in which we live, then even if you hold to a preterist position, you still should be prepared for Yeshua's second coming, be prepared to lose your life right at the, at the uprising of the uh, tribulation threat around the corner. Whether you believe it's, it's there or not, or whether you believe it's on its way or not, the point being is your faith in Yeshua is what's going to prepare you. Not your own mental uh, exercise of figuring out which interpretation is better. Not that you have become a preterist versus a futurist or an idealist or a historicist, etc., etc. Those positions are good to help you understand the Bible, and I really do believe that some of them are going to help you be better prepared one position versus the other. But ultimately, in the end, your relationship with God through His Son, Yeshua, is the single most important detail that's going to get you through what is right around the corner, whether you believe it's going to be a really tough time, whether you believe we're just going to kind of slide smoothly into the second coming of Jesus and ushering in of the Millennial Kingdom. All right, so um, pay attention to the views, but focus on Jesus. Get your eyes focused on Him, right? Don't don't get your eyes um, distracted by, well, that view doesn't believe what I believe, so I'm just going to go around making sure that my view is correct. Nope, it doesn't work that way. All right, so let's talk about the first view. They're in no particular order. They're just whichever views I, I decided to put in my essay. Preterist. And this comes from the Latin word for praetor, which means past, right? Praetor, something that's already in the past. It's already happened, i.e., let's just read it. This view holds that most of the events in Matthew 24 were fulfilled in the first century, specifically with the destruction of the temple uh, in AD 70. Proponents of this view argue that Jesus was predicting the judgment that would come upon Israel for rejecting him as the Messiah. Let me add that last little part there before I had to scroll up. So, preterists, there are two main flavors of preterism. Uh, there's the, what we might call, hyper-preterism or full-preterism, where most, if not all, of the events that Jesus describes in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the entire book of Revelation, all of this is in the past. Already happened. Destruction of Jerusalem, the um, Antichrist, the uh, resurrection from the dead, the rapture, the um, kingdom being established, or something. I mean, uh, it, it at some point in time, as you can probably detect, Full-blown preterism 
tips over into heresy. Yeah, because of the way that Scripture has to be completely kind of spiritualized in order to account for a lot of the details of the book of Revelation to actually have taken place, like the devil being bound for a thousand years, etc., etc. So um, I'm going to probably caution you away from full-blown preterism. However, the other flavor of preterism, which is partial preterism, there are some details about partial preterism that we can glean to our benefit, even if you're not a partial preterist, particularly if you're not a partial preterist, if you hold to one of the other views. Indeed, as we begin, to, we're going to find out, the words that Yeshua left for us in the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and others, the Olivet Discourse, as well as the book of Revelation, we're going to find out that some of those events actually match what took place in 70 AD. Yeah, okay. So, we can um, benefit from looking at history past and realize that there was partial fulfillment. If you're not a preterist, then you can just uh, describe it that way. Yeah, there, the preterists have some leg to stand on because the 70, the, the 70 AD events did take place. It's not like we are denying that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and that Jerusalem was plowed under in, 130s, in the 130s with the revolts. No, we're not denying that that, that that happened. We agree. And we also agree that Yeshua forecasted or foretold that these things would happen. So, that's preterism. Let's look at a, um, a, the second view that I have on my list here. Again, these are in no particular order. The futurist view. This view holds that most of the events in Matthew 24 are still in the future, thus its name, and will be fulfilled during the end times. Proponents of this view argue that Jesus was predicting the events that will occur just before his return, including the rise of the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation. Now, I need to add something before I uh, tell you which view I hold to. Uh, when I wrote those words about, um, let me scroll, there we go. Uh, when I wrote the words about predicting the events that reoccurred just before his return, I didn't have a heavy emphasis on the idea of near-far uh, prophetic telescoping at least 25 years ago. I wasn't making that a, a, as much of a point as I do now. Although, now that I've come back and read, that I'm redoing this study after 25 years, I realize that I have to emphasize this more and more because it becomes a bit confusing unless you're aware of this. When we talk about the return of Yeshua, right, those of us who are not preterists, when we talk about the return of Yeshua, we have to account for the fact that there are two primary aspects to his second return. Or his return, his second coming, his return, right? So Yeshua, essentially, from the overall historical perspective, is going to visit planet Earth two times. He came once in the first century, that was two thousand years ago, and he's going to come again, as we believe, very shortly, uh, to usher in his millennial kingdom. So that's two comings of the Messiah. Something that the ancient Jewish people and the, even the Jewish people of today are still blinded to, right? They only see one Messiah, or they see no Messiah. Um, and for those who did see uh, two significant events, they sometimes got confused and thought it was actually two messiahs. But what we as Christians understand is that there's one messiah and two arrivals or two visits to planet Earth. One time when he was a baby, 2,000 years ago, grew up and was crucified on a cross and then ascended to heaven. And now he's in heaven waiting to return to usher in his kingdom. So that's the second return. But... As we zero in and zoom in on the second coming, 
right? His return the second time, his return to planet Earth. There are two primary aspects to the return, which I believe are marked out by the rapture and the physical return to planet Earth, where his feet touch the ground and where he returns with the saints. So don't get confused when we're looking at these details in Matthew 25, where Yeshua is talking about his return. There are, again, there's the prophetic telescoping template that we have to account for, where there's some language that's going to be reused, and yet at the same time, we have to account for the fact that when he's talking about his second coming, when, his, when he talks about his return, is he talking about his return to snatch the saints away? Or is he talking about his return to bring the saints back with him who've already been taken up to heaven and he's going to bring in, usher in uh, his millennial kingdom? And there's some events that take place between those two um aspects the rapture and the ushering uh, ushering in of his kingdom so this is what we're going to begin to try to peel back eventually as we draw because we're getting closer and closer to the book of revelation aspect uh, part of our study we'll begin to look at this more and more so i thought i'd introduce that to you right now let's keep reading this uh essay this third particular view, three out of four, again, no particular order, is the historicist view. This view holds that Matthew 24 is a prophecy that spans the entire course of history from the first century to the end times. Proponents of this view argue that the events uh, Jesus describes in, um, in all three of these accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this, uh, these events that are described have been unfolding throughout history and will culminate in his return. And again, as you're probably detecting as I'm reading these particular um, uh, interpretations, there's a little bit of truth to all of them. We could almost take a fifth view, which is known as the eclectic view, where we take all four and we just kind of glean what is uh what makes sense from most from all four and reject that which doesn't seem to harmonize that would might be an eclectic perspective there are those who who take that view and there are those who take the the unspoken sixth view this is tongue-in-cheek i'm saying this right this is not i'm saying this in irony they take the unspoken sixth tongue-in-cheek view which is the pan raptures view or pan eschatological view which means everything will just pan out in the end i don't have to worry about it god will figure it out because that's his job okay no no that's that's not a view that any of us really should be taking but sadly that is a view that many people who simply are apathetic and don't really have the interest in end time prophecy just tend to take well i read the bible and that's good enough and god will work everything out i don't have to worry Taken to an extreme, that's what we would describe. But again, I'm not trying to insult those who say, I don't need to worry because I actually fully do trust God. Maybe that is their perspective because they're saying, I can't figure this out. It's too difficult for me, too many details. So I'm just going to sit back, trust God, and he will work everything out. There actually is benefit to that perspective, and I'm not trying to mock those who have that view. I'm trying to simply alert you to the fact that there are people who simply say, well, I'm a lazy lazy Christian, and I just don't have the time to study through all this stuff. So that's the view, the view I'm trying to warn you away from. And then last, uh, the fourth of four views that I'm highlighting here in this short little essay is the idealist view. This view holds that Matthew 24 is a symbolic description 
of the struggle between good and evil throughout history. As you can see from the wording, it's very similar to the historicist view that I just read above, but this one even goes a, takes a further step back and just says, well, we don't even have to look for really historical events like the rise and fall of empires and world leaders and um, you know the uh, natural disasters that have been taking place on planet Earth ever you know for for a long time for two thousand years. We don't even have to look at those events as really being physical events everything's really just symbolic of the struggle in the heavens between good and evil i go on to say that proponents of this view argue that the events that jesus describes are not meant to be taken literally but represent spiritual truths this view is really easy to adopt especially when you get to the book of revelation you start reading about lions and tigers and bears oh my right lots of dragons with lots of heads and lots of horns and lots of crowns and um you know locusts that look demons that look like locusts with stingers in their tails and hair like women and i mean it gets really crazy and so it's no wonder that people say well there's no way that John could have been describing, you know, stars falling from the sky to earth. You know, the stars fell from the sky, um, falling to the earth. Well, we know that if even one star hit the earth, that's it. Bye-bye, planet Earth. So, John couldn't be describing literal stars. Maybe he's describing meteorites, right? Or um, meteoric, meteoric activity or something like that. Um, shooting stars, what we call it. All right, even that's metaphorical, right? We don't—they're not really shooting stars. They're—they're they're falling pieces of glowing rock that are hitting the earth. So it's no wonder that people take this particular view, where they say, "Well, none of that's really literal. None of that's going to happen in real life. It just represents kind of this um, spiritual dimension that we can't see. It's invisible." All right. Well, oh, I didn't even tell you which view I hold to. Well, you probably already know. Um, this one, the one I've got parked in front of my screen right now. I hold to the futurist view. I think that most of the events that we're going to be studying in this look at the Olivet Discourse and eventually the Book of Revelation, I think most of them are still future. But I recognize the benefits of the other three views, particularly the um, preterist and the historicist view. I don't find a lot of use for the, the idealist view myself. Personally, I'm just not a fan of spiritualizing a lot of the scriptures away. Um, I'm more of a literalist myself, so I favor the future's view. I recognize the benefits and the contributions that the historicist view brings to the table, as well as the Praetor's view as uh, as well. But the future's view is the one that I adopt in as my hermeneutic. So we're going to work from that perspective. All right, let's keep going into this commentary. How am I doing on time? Well, I think I've got about 20, yeah, 20 minutes or so left. Let's keep going. This next short chapter heading or paragraph in this short essay is entitled significance for christians today all right and i alluded to this earlier but just listen up again regardless of which interpretation one subscribes to matthew 24 has important implications for christians today it reminds us that jesus will one day return to judge the living and the dead and that we must be ready for his coming I'll pause and let that sink in. It doesn't ultimately matter which view you hold to. What ultimately matters is, are you ready? Are you ready for him? Are you ready to meet the master? Are you ready for the king's return? As I mentioned in my prayer, uh, my opening prayer, the fall festivals are right around the corner from this recording. At the time of this recording, 
um, the fall festivals are about two or three weeks right around the corner, if not sooner, because of the delay from my edit to the time that this gets uploaded to the uh, internet and to YouTube, etc., etc. And the fall festivals open with the initial one of three main festivals, four if you count Shmini Atzeret as a, as a separate one, but the first of the um, significant fall festivals is um, what the calendar calls Rosh Hashanah, or if you can't trill the R's and make it sound Hebrew-like, Rosh Hashanah. But the Hebrew name from the Bible is Yom Truah, the day of the awakening trumpet blast, the day for blowing trumpets and blowing shofars. And the reason we blow the trumpet, or the reason we're commanded to blow the trumpet, is because God wants us to be aware of this theme of awake Oh, sleeper. The idea is that God's people at the end of the age or at the time during the bringing in of the fall feasts, the people of Israel or God's people are spiritually asleep. And the shofar and the trumpet are the alarm clocks to wake us out of that spiritual slumber. And so, in a kind of a micro or a shrunken way, the fall festivals represent really the end of the age as it dawns upon the bringing in of, of the kingdom of Messiah, the Messianic kingdom. What happens when the master returns to planet Earth is he finds most of the church asleep at the wheel, right? We're spiritual asleep. And so that's why I said in my commentary, regardless of which interpretation one subscribed to, We've got to be aware that Yeshua's words remind us that one day he is going to return to judge both living and dead, and that we must be ready. We must be awake. And this plays heavily into the themes of his second coming, particularly when it talks about the rapture. Are you going to be sleeping? Or, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the rapture and the second coming. Are you going to be sleeping spiritually? Are you going to be ready? When we start getting later, later down into Matthew's rendering of the Olivet Discourse, Yeshua even gives, he takes a lot of time to talk about these parables, about the ten virgins, and about the master who's gone away on a long journey and then comes back. I got that out of order, by the way. That's the, the master returning is the first parable, and then the ten virgins, the five foolish and the five wise, is the second parable. But the theme is, is, is identical, which is why he repeats it, I believe. The theme of... Some of us are going to be sleeping. Some of us are not going to be ready to, and uh, awake to meet the Master. And so for that reason, the general theme, the general consensus of planet Earth is that the return is going to be likened to a, a thief who breaks into a house in the middle of the night. The thief in the night is kind of the motif that even Paul picks up on in his letters to the Thessalonians, which we'll turn to in time. And why would this be why would a second coming be like a thief in the night? Because most people are asleep, including Christians, which is a really sad commentary on the church, right? You guys need to wake up. The church is in compromise. She's in um, spiritual uh, lethargy. She is in, um, uh, she's, in she's, she's watered down her uh, morality and her ethics and she's really just one step behind the world when it comes to those particular areas and so when yeshua returns will he find people awake and waiting for him like the five wise virgins will he find them having their lamps trimmed and there's oil and they're ready to meet the bridegroom right will the bride be ready to meet the bridegroom we must be ready for his coming
All right, so sorry to step on the soapbox for a little bit. Let's return to my essay. I go on to say, it also teaches us to be vigilant and watchful, always looking for signs of his return. Let me, I, I have to add once more again, I, I apologize, but this is urgent, right? Given the nature of what we're talking about and the time frame in which we live. When Yeshua returns, he describes his return as being unexpected because of the general 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 uh, kind of uh, sentiment and mind frame of the general world. So obviously, the the world is going to be eating, sleeping, and drinking, and marrying, and giving marriage. It'll be just like the dates of Noah. We're going to read about when we start getting through the verses. It's because just like in the days of Noah that we read about in Genesis. The, the world at large had no expectation that there was going to be any disaster. It was going to befall them the likes of a worldwide deluge, right? They didn't realize that that the flood was going to wash them all away. They had no concept. Even though Noah preached to them, he preached to them uh, that this was going to happen. He warned them in advance, but they didn't care. They didn't have ears to hear. Their eyes were not open to receive the truth. Thus will be the same for the end of the age when Yeshua returns. The world at large simply will not receive the love of the truth. And therefore, like Paul talks about in the book of Romans, um, God's going to give them over to a reprobate mind. And then he echoes again in the book of Thess- in his letters to the Thessalonians, the great deception is going to overtake them. So, Yeshua's return is going to be like a thief in the night. And yet, Paul goes on to remind us that those of us, this is in the Thessalonian chapters, those of us who are part of Yeshua's body are not like those who are in the dark. He gives us credit if you're a genuine believer, because the Spirit lives inside of you, is going to bring about that warning, that that urgency of the matter, right? Where we are expecting Yeshua's return, even though we don't know when. Indeed, Yeshua is going to admonish us to learn the lesson from the fig tree, to learn the lesson from whenever the seasons change, to be aware of the season of His return. We don't know the exact day, we don't know the exact hour, but we are supposed to be aware of the season based on the signs that are taking place all around us. So having said all that, on the one hand, the general world at large is going to be large, I mean, in the dark. They're clueless. They don't care. They don't They don't know. They don't care. And that's their problem. But we as believers should not be in the dark, even though we don't know the exact day and hour of his coming. We should be aware of the general proximity, the closeness of his coming, just like those five wise virgins, those five wise um, brides were waiting for, with expectancy, for the bridegroom to come. Even they don't know exactly when, but they knew he was going to return soon. And though, so they kept their oil, their lamps filled with oil, and the wicks trimmed, and they were ready. The uh, by comparison, the why the five foolish virgins. You've read the story before. They just went to sleep. They fell asleep, and then when the time came, they're like. They're like I'm paraphrasing, right? They're like, give us, give us some oil. You know, they're telling to the five wise ones, give us some oil, help us out. You know, you know, uh, please, please, please. And then they're like, no, we won't have enough for our own lamps if we give to you. So, bridegroom came and he met the five wise ones, and it went well for them. But the five foolish ones, he looked at them. He's like, um, sorry, don't know you. Yeah, don't be those. Okay. All right. So let's keep reading through these words. I think I won't say any more on that matter until we get to the actual um, verses themselves. In this particular section, though, about 
um, Christian um, expectations and the way this impacts us and how we need to be prepared. In addition, Matthew 24 reminds us that the world is not our home. At least this era is not our home. When he brings the millennial kingdom to earth and establishes righteousness on the earth for a thousand years, well then for that brief time, this world will be our home um, for that thousand years. And then the eternal stage will be ushered in. So this era, this 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 olam hazeh, um, is not our to use a Hebrew term, which means the, the this age. This age is not our home, but the olam haba is definitely our home. And so we shouldn't put our trust in earthly things, right? Yeshua said it best: Don't um, set your heart and your treasure on things on earth, where moth and rust corrupts, and where thieves break through and steal. But instead, place your treasure, place your heart, place your the importance and your focus on things in heaven where moth and rust uh, don't corrupt and where th- thieves do not break through and steal. And he concludes by saying, for where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we need to take our eyes off all of our shiny toys down here on planet earth when god calls for us we as children need to drop our toys and run to where he's standing okay let's continue the destruction of the temple services as a warning um, that all earthly things will one day pass away then we must focus on the things that are eternal so yeshua takes this opportunity to have this chat with his buddies right his disciples to kind of give them an object lesson i mean they start out the whole discord by saying the discourse by saying wow look at the temple how shiny how how bright right how look at all the gold look at all the jewels look at all the 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 beautiful architecture the stones and and you know uh the the the, um the tapestry and etc and yes i'm not trying to minimize all that it was a beautiful place and yet yeshua wanted them to get their eyes focused on the on what mattered most indeed he just he right away doesn't he he, his answer to them when they're saying look at all these stones look at all the beautiful um uh you know the 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 building etc etc he's like yeah it is beautiful but and i'm paraphrasing of course but Everything's gonna be. Everything's gonna fall down. Everything's gonna be broken down. Every stone is gonna be upturned, you know, turned over, and that indeed took place literally when Titus and his armies destroyed the temple. And because of the intense heat, all the gold melted down in between the stones. And because they were greedy and wanted to get at that gold, they just tore each stone apart. All right. Um, we've got about ten minutes left in the study. Um, let me just introduce you to this idea of Matthew twenty-four and Revelation six through seven parallels. I'm not going to really get into the verse-by-verse study tonight. Let me just scroll down and, wow, look at my chart. Just didn't show up on the screen. All right, um, I'll have to put that in post-production. So let me start talking about this um, this parallel that is important for us, and then we will probably call it quits for tonight, and then we'll pick this up again next week. So this next uh, paragraph heading is entitled Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 through 7 Parallels. I go on to say, before we examine the striking parallels between Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 6-7 of the book of Revelation, let us first examine the following chart for reference purposes. And for those of you with me in the live class, you can see that when I scroll down, the chart is missing. And I think I did something wrong in my little, um, when I uh, 
uh, when I created this in Word document and then I transformed it into a, converted into an HTML document so I could read it on my browser, I broke the link between the chart and the document. So I'll just add this in post-production. So just pretend that you're looking at a chart. Um, but for those who are looking at the chart, uh, we'll take time to um, back up and look at this after I read through the notes uh, next week. I'll, I'll, I'll add this in. I'll flash it on the screen for you in post-production, but we're not going to stop and uh, look at each detail until we get to next week. Instead, what I'll do is I'll scroll down and read the paragraph notes that are that should be accompanying the chart and there's some bullet points that we will be able to look at tonight and here's what I have to say in my notes as can be observed from the chart above I'm just laughing because the chart's missing. Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 6 through 7 of the book of Revelation exhibit numerous similarities in their depictions of the culmination of times. Here are some key resemblances. So let's look at these bullet points because these are in my notes. So uh, referencing the chart that didn't show up but did in post-production. Um, these are in no particular order but point number one. Indicators of the end times. In both Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, there's a portrayal of the signs indicating the conclusion of times, encompassing conflicts, scarcities, seismic, there we go, scroll up, seismic disturbances, and oppression. In Matthew 24, 6 through 8, Jesus describes these signs as the initial labor pains, while in Revelation 6, 1 through 8, the four horsemen symbolize these signs. So, this is what we're doing on purpose in order to recognize and put back together the details of Jesus' discourse in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as they parallel what he was is going to end up giving John after he's already risen and ascended on high and sitting at the right hand of the Father. He then comes and gives John this revelation of the end time events after, as I understand it, after the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I believe that John wrote his letter to of the revelation of Jesus, the book of Revelations, in the... 90s, which is what most scholars also agree with. Again, you have to be a preterist to disagree with the timing of the book of Revelation. You instead have to place it in the 70s or shortly before this. I'm sorry, yeah, not the 70s, but in the 60s before the destruction of the temple in order for your preterist perspective to hold some water. Indeed, that's the linchpin for preterism. If it can be proven without a shadow of a doubt, and unfortunately there are some doubts. But if it can be proven without a shadow of a doubt that the book of Revelation was written after the destruction of the temple, well, then preterism falls apart. And, you know, it's a recent view anyway. It only came about around the 1500s or 1600s, sometime after the Protestant Reformation, etc., etc. So, let's look at these parallels between these two um, sections of the Bible. Parallel number two is the martyrs. And I talk about how that both Matthew 24 and Revelation 6-7 depict the suffering and martyrdom of followers during the end times. I mentioned this during our studies of the Antichrist, that according to my understanding of the Bible, when the Antichrist rises to power and he eventually besieges Jerusalem, sets up his um, abominable idol 
or temple, uh, I'm sorry, abominable structure in the temple. We don't know what it will be. I mean, it's some sort of idol, um, some sort of figure of himself or uh, something that represents him, a number or his name or something like that. And he imposes worldwide worship of himself. He's going to begin this intense persecution against Jewish people and against Christians who name the name of Jesus. And thus, during that time, the Bible describes its intense martyrdom. Really, this is part of the intense tribulation that's going to take the that's going to overtake the entire world. And yet, the focus the focus of of the Antichrist's persecution will be the martyrdom of those who refuse to take his mark or uh, recognize his name or owe their allegiance to him. In other words, um, faithful Jews and Christians, and really anyone, you don't have to be Jewish or Christian, anyone who opposes him, he's going to target. So when we talk about martyrdom, we're primarily talking about those who are believers, but surely this will also include, he doesn't care, he's just going to um, eliminate anyone who, who tries to stand in his way. So these are, of course, paralleled uh, with one another in Yeshua's depiction of the um, destruction of 70 AD, along with the greater martyrdom that should take place uh, that was paralleled when he gave the revelation to John in the book of Revelation. So, what I'm alerting to the fact is that, obviously, there was a martyrdom and what we might call the, the, the slaughtering of Christians in the first century, right, under Emperor Nero, and I think he was one of the most intense Christian haters of, that, of the Roman era at that time. And you can read about the horrific events that took place uh, during that time in Fox's Book of Martyrs, a very famous book that has been preserved for us. So, yes, there was martyrdom in the first century, but we understand from a near-far perspective, right, prophetic telescoping, that that was just partial fulfillment to the martyrdom that should take place at the end of days in the 70th week. So, let's keep reading this um, this essay. I'm going to say that in Matthew 24, 9-14, Jesus cautions that adherents will endure persecution and death for their faith, while in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, the souls of the martyrs seek justice. I might also remind you that when we studied through the book of Daniel, that Daniel already foresaw way back then via the um, revelation that was given to him, right? The prophecies and the dream and the visions and the angel was interpreting for him. Go back and read Daniel chapter 2 chapter 7, and then um, chapter 9, particularly, um, as well as, you may as well, if you're going to start there in 2, 7, and 9, you may as well, when you get to 9, just keep reading to the end of the book. So, 2, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12 of Daniel. Go back and read those. But what Daniel warned us in advance is that, and he was using the language of the saints, which since the mystery of the Gentiles being included into the people of God was hidden from the Old Testament prophets, then Daniel would have understood the phrase saints to be referring to those righteous individuals within Israel. But we know now from hindsight that saints actually includes Gentile Christians who've been grafted into Israel and have placed their genuine faith in Yeshua and thus they are included in as the saints. But the point being is Daniel prophesied that there would be a time when this little horn of Daniel would make war with the saints and overcome them. They would lose their lives, thus martyrdom. 
So it's no surprise when Yeshua is talking about the martyrdom of the, the of Christians and general believers, right? He tells his disciples, be on your guard because they're going to haul you into synagogues, into the, into the assemblies, and they're going to put you on trial, and they're going to take your life, right? Don't worry because my father's in control, and if you do live, I'll give you the words to say. I'll put the words in your mouth. Don't even have to think about what you're going to say in advance, but for many of you, you're just going to lose your life, right? Just just settle it within your hearts that um, you're going to be martyrs, right? You're going to lose your life for my sake. So Daniel was already had already prophesied that this would happen, and thus when Yeshua is giving these details to his disciples, it shouldn't have been anything uh, particularly shocking. Like, what? What? We're going to lose our lives? I thought we were overcomers. I thought we're going to win the day. I thought with you on our side, there's no one who can defeat us, right? God is for us. Who can be against us? Well, yeah, generally speaking, that's true, but, and I'm closing this, we'll break off here in the middle, and we'll pick this up next week. Yeshua wants us to know that there's a time that on God's calendar is actually set aside for the martyrdom. I mean, it's prophesied in Daniel, it's picked up again in Yeshua, and it's detailed in the book of Revelation. It's going to happen. It's not something that we can pray away and say, Lord, take this off your schedule. It's actually on the schedule, and so um, it's going to happen. We wish it wouldn't happen, but it's just part of God's plan. So that's going to do it for our look at eschatology, biblical study of end time events. We'll pick this up in the next week. We broke off right in the middle uh, of the looking at these um, parallels between the all of the discourse uh, details and the Book of Revelation, chapter six through uh, six and seven. And we'll pick this up next week. But that'll do it for eschatology, biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. Um, 
uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ari Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's continue where we left off. We're working our way through this study on the book of Psalms, chapter 110, verse 1 through 5, but the main focus is on verse 1 because that's what biblicalunitarian.com brought to our attention. So if I kind of jump backwards in my tabs, you can see I've got biblicalunitarian.com, a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and they've got Psalm 110.1 uh, parked in front of us. And what they have to say in a nutshell, <clears throat> what they have to say in a nutshell is that this psalm is a dialogue between Yahweh God, the Father, the first Lord that you see on your screen right there, and His Son, Jesus, the second Lord that you see on your screen right there. But this second Lord is the human Jesus. He's a human Messiah. He's a human figure. He's not divine. He's not um, part man, part God. He's not a demigod or anything like that. So, Biblical Unitarian decidedly takes a position that Jesus is not divine. They do not believe in the Trinity. They are a non-Trinitarian uh, uh, Christian denomination. I, as a Trinitarian, take a different position. I believe that God is Trinity. I believe that God is one God. He's one being. He's one essence, but that essence is shared across the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All share the same nature. They're all full deity, and yet it does not represent three gods. One god, three persons, or as is commonly stated by Trinitarians, the likes of Dr. James White, God is one what and three who's. So we're taking the uh, different position. Let's read Psalm 110 in the Hebrew and in the Greek. We'll start in the English. Let me blow that up for you on your screen. A psalm, this is the NASB version of the Bible. A psalm of David, the, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The clause in question, the one that's getting the most attention from our study is this one that I've highlighted. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, says to my Lord, capital L only, lowercase O-R-D. Who is the first Lord? Who is the second Lord? And what is the nature of their being? When we turn over to the Hebrew... Um, it simply reads, let me go there like that. It simply reads, La David Mizmor Neum Yahweh. And I'm saying Yahweh for the tetragrammaton name of God. Many people would simply say Lord or Adonai or Hashem, uh, uh, Jehovah. Some people would say something like that. But I'm, I'm just for emphasis so that you can see that it's YHVH and that it's representational of the Tetragrammaton covenant name of God as opposed to any other circumlocution or um, title for God like Elohim or Adonai or something like that. I'm saying Yahweh. So, um, Ladoni Mizmor Naum Yahweh Ladoni. I'm sorry, Le David Mizmor Naum Yahweh Ladoni. 
יושב לימיני עד אשית אויביך הדום לרג לך. The clause in question, as I highlighted earlier, is נאום יחווה לדוני. Says, or an oracle, really, the נאום is a verb. It's not, I'm sorry, it's a noun, not a verb. Even though it's translated in most Bibles as said, uh, like verbal fashion, since the, the English is said, but the literal Hebrew is, Neum is an oracle, as in it's a noun. An oracle of Yahweh unto Adoni. Now, the question that's being brought up by Trinitarian versus Unitarian discussions is, is the second Lord, is he Adoni, like the Masoretes have vowel pointed for us, or is it Adonai? We'll look at that here in a moment. Let me read the Greek first, and then we'll talk about this Adoni versus Adonai. So we've got um, John Barich's uh, uh, website pulled up where he is taking the um, task of taking the Greek Septuagint in two of its manuscript forms and is translating it into English and then um, doing his own study into the Greek. We've got a Psalm of David, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, at the very top English that resembles KJV. We've got the Hebrew below that once more, which I don't need to read since I already read it. And then we've got two versions. On the left side of your screen, we've got the Alexandrinus version of the LXX Septuagint, Greek. And on the right side of the screen, we've got the Vaticanus version of the same passage just you can see there's some very slight differences the first clause to david or david tolmas and then um the second one starts off tolmas to david or david uh or david uh so just the, the slightly different syntax order of the words but primarily it's the same so i've been borrowing the uh one on the left the alexandrinus since that's my favorite one so it reads, Todawid Talmas Apen Ha Kurias To Kurio Mu Kathu Ek Dezion Mu Heos An Tho Tus Ek Thrusu Hupa Padion Ton Padon Su. And the clause in question is right there. Apen, and this time the Greek opts for the word apen, which is said, instead of the noun form like. Uh, we read in the Hebrew for um, Neum, an oracle. So, um, Apen, Ha, the, Kudios, Lord, or Yahweh, To, to the, Kudio, Lord, Mu, or Lord of, Mu, me, uh, to the Lord of me, or if we smooth it out into the name way we normally speak English, to my Lord. So, said the Lord to my Lord. So, that's the um, that's the issue. Now, let's look at a little bit more closely at the Hebrew and why we're having this discussion in the first place. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because this is just review before we jump into the study. If you look on your screen, you can see uh, the Hebrew representation of the word Adonai or Adon with the emphatic my added to it, right? So on the left side of your screen, we have, I'm sorry, on the uh, right side of the screen, start there. On the right side of the screen, we have Adonai in English spelled as A-D-O-N-A-I with a capital A. And the explanation is that it's pronounced as Adon plus I, E-Y-E. And so it comes out as Adonai. Some people say, some Orthodox Jews will say Adonoi. 
Um, and some people say Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-Y. But uh, my understanding of the Hebrew is Adonai, or when I was worshiping as an Orthodox Jew, I did say Adonai. But Adonai is a title that's reserved exclusively for God with the capital A, and with the vowel markings, the little dots and dashes, in this case, the kamats, which looks like a capital T underneath the letter N that you can see circled in red there, kamats. I don't want you to focus on the name of that little vowel marking. What I want you to do is simply focus on the sound that it makes. Ah, adonai, right? With the yod at the final end, forming the... Um, uh, grammar that re that is in, interpreted as or translated as the god of me or the god of mine the the the, the mu part that we read earlier in the Greek this is my god literally really this is more emphatic when we're talking about God it's Adonai it's actually my lords or my, right my lords not my god but my lords the lords plural but we just translate it as lord singular so my lord uh, comparatively on the left Adoni is Spelled in English with A-D-O-N-I, lowercase a. You can see it's pronounced as Adon plus a double E, so Adoni. And this is because of the little period-looking vowel marking underneath the N this time that is known as the Chirik. And the Chirik is a vowel marking that still indicates Lord my or my Lord, but this time it's not emphatic in the plural sense. And this follows in line with other Hebrew words when you're saying my, such as father is av, my father is avi, brother is ach, A-C-H, with that guttural sound for the C-H, ach. And how do we say my brother? We say achi. So avi, my father, achi, my brother, adoni, my Lord. We even have um, Rabbi or Rabbi, my master or my 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 teacher, right? Rabbi. The little I on the end of Rabbi in the English is in, indicative of the the teacher of me, Rab or Rob, me me, right? Rabbi, Rabbi. All right, so Rabbi in the uh, Greek. So Adoni is the Lord of me or my Lord, and it's pronounced as Adoni, and it nearly always refers to human superiors. According to Biblical Unitarian and those who are non-Trinitarians, it always refers to human superiors, or sometimes to angels, but never to God. What we found in our research is that's not entirely true, especially in a technical sense when we have names of God that are given to human beings, such as Adonaiah or Adoniah. His name is a composite of two of God's titles, Adoni plus Yah. Adoni, which is the title for Lord, and then Yah, which is God's uh, a shortened form of God's covenantal name. So Adoniah, an individual that shows up in the book of First Kings, his name is indeed referencing the one true God, is it not? Just like all the other biblical names that have God's names uh, attached to them. Isaiah is Yeshua Yahu. Uh, Jeremiah is Yerim Yahu. Daniel is Daniel. The name of Israel is Israel. So, what the, these names, um, Ezekiel is Ezekiel. So, these names have reference to the one true God. No one would argue that. Right, Isaiah's name, the Yah part of Isaiah, Yisha Yahu, the Yahu part is not a reference to a false god or to Isaiah himself. 
even though it is Isaiah's name, Jeremiah, Yidima, Yahoo, the Yahoo part at the end of Jeremiah, the I-A-H part in English, but it's in the Hebrew, it's Yidima, Yahoo. The Yahoo part isn't a reference to a false god. It's a reference to the true God in heaven. No one would dispute that. And yet, for some reason, non-Trinitarians can't see the fact that adonai the Adonai part, is not a reference to a human or an angel. He was not named after an, a, a human or an angel. He was named after God, right? adoni Adonai, which Adonai? Is it adonai as in A-D-O-N-A-I, and then Yah? No. If you go back and look at the Basaritic vowel pointings, which we looked at, I'll flash a little graphic on the screen for you to see this, so I don't have to look it up right now. It's actually A-D-O-N-I, Adonai. The vowel markings have the chirik under the noon, and not the kamats under the noon. And so you can see I'm here. I'm a little bit heated here because um, I'm just kind of amazed that this name shows up like almost 30 times in the Bible. And yet the non-Trinitarians try to remind me that Adoni never, emphasis on the word, never applies to God, only applies to humans or angels. I guess they just didn't realize that Adoni was referencing God and not a human or an angel. All right, I'll step off my soapbox. Let's jump over to, um, uh, well, let me just uh, remind you that Adon, the root, for, the root word for Adoni as well, is the root word for Adonai. Strong's number 113, the root word Adon, which simply means Lord without any context. You don't know if it's a Lord God, Lord David, Lord King, Lord Angel. You don't know what it is until you read the context. But in the Strong's numbering system, 113 is the root. And then when we have Adoni for the humans and the angels, we still use 113 as our parking point, as our foundation. But when we get to the emphatic Adonai, or some people say Adonai, some people say Adonai, as you can see on my screen there, on the right side of your screen, then Strong's has assigned an entirely different number so as to indicate that this is God's covenantal name uh, or a, a representation of God's covenantal name. What we're going to find out tonight, if we have time, is that... When we encounter the Greek of Kudios, there's this particular special occurrence in the in some manuscripts, particularly when it uses the unseal type of Greek writing, which is the all capital letters of Greek, that the tradition was to highlight in the text when the writer believed interpretively that the um, text was referring to either a human or to a divine figure, such as one of the persons of the Trinity, like God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, although the Holy Spirit references came a lot later, but primarily God the Father, God the Son. And this factors into our discussion about whether or not the, the understanding of the Greek kudios where it says, the Lord said to the Lord of me, you know, to kudios, um, uh, uh, let me just pull it up again, because I can't remember it off uh, off the top of my head. Apen al kudios to kudio mu. There's two kudioses there in the Greek. Let me blow it up for you. There's two kudioses in the Greek, as you can see. The first one is there, in case you can't read Greek, kudios. That's the Lord God, God, uh, the Father of Yeshua, YHVH represented in the Hebrew, Yahweh. But the second kudios here uh, that reads kudiomu is the second Lord that the biblical Unitarians say is the human Jesus. And yet, the point I'm trying to alert you to the fact 
right away is that the Greek writers simply took to representing um, the word Lord and Yahweh, the title Lord, as kudios in both cases. So Yahweh turned into kudios, and then Adonai or Adoni also turned into kudios or kudiomu here because it's it's the Lord of me. So what are we to make of this? Does this prove that the second Lord is a divine character? Well, I think that it's it's entirely probable that by the first century that the Christians at least were interpreting this second kudios as indeed divine. And we'll find this out as we begin to look at what's known as the nomina sacra. I didn't bring this up in earlier studies because I thought it was a bit more technical, and I don't think it's a slam dunk in the in the in, in the um Trinitarian camp, because indeed, when we're talking about the Masoretic vowel pointing, we're talking about a commentary on the Bible that came nearly a thousand years after the Bible was written. Indeed, several hundred years, up to maybe anywhere from 500 to 900 years after the first century era, when Yeshua and the disciples would have been reading through their, not only their Hebrew Bibles, but reading through their Greek interpret or Greek translations of the Hebrew Bibles. And so they're encountering Adonai and Adonai supposedly from the Masoretic um, scribal tradition of pronouncing them as Adonai, Adonai, but we don't know for sure, because these are commentaries on the Bible, as has been preserved both in the vowel pointing as well as the, the oral tradition that accompanied um, the reading of the scripture before we actually had the vowel markings. Did you guys get lost? You guys understand what I'm saying? This is why the argument from Biblical Unitarian is a bit weak, and someone even pointed out that, well, if we don't know if it said Adoni in verse 1, how do we know that it really says Adonai in verse 5? Let me scroll down and show you what I'm talking about. Some of you are lost. Um, I know I'm going breakneck speed and it's try, like trying to like, get a drink out of a fire hydrant, but it's because this is review. If you look at verse, oh, sorry, if you look at verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. The... Um, the first clause, the Lord is at your right hand, contains the word Lord. And in your English Bibles... It looks identical to the second Lord in the verse 1, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. But when we scroll over to the Hebrew, it says Adonai al-Yamincha. Adonai is marked out by the Masoretes as having the kamats under the letter N, which gives it the pronunciation Adonai, not Adoni, and therefore, according to the Masoretic understanding, this figure, this Lord in verse 5, is God the Father, the Lord at your right hand. And yet, contextually, the person at the right hand of the other person was the human Adoni, according to the same Masoretes. And yet, suddenly, this person in verse 5, who's at the right hand, has, has, it's suddenly God switching places with his own son or the one who is the figure described at the right hand of God. Remember, rabbinic Jews don't believe that God has a son, neither do the um, a strong monotheistic uh, uh, Christians who would reject the deity of Jesus. They would just say, well, Jesus is the son of God, Just, but we're all sons of God. I mean, we're all um, created in his image, etc., etc. 
Well, we say that Jesus is a unique Son of God. So the point I'm trying to bring up is that in verse 5, we either have one of two things going on. We either have Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's referred to as Adonai, the very same divine title that was given to God in other parts of the Bible, A-D-O-N-A-I, which is either a representation of Yahweh in other places, and, and sometimes it's simply written out as A-D-O-N-A-I, Adonai, but it's still God, but Jesus has given this title, meaning it's alluding to his divinity. That's one possibility. Verse 5 is Jesus sitting at the right hand of Yahweh in verse 1. Another possibility is that, yes, David is suddenly writing about God the Father, who is now at the right hand of this messianic king, um, who is sitting, who is sitting at the right hand of God. But the position of being at the right hand, notice it doesn't use the word sitting, but it just says all, um, <clears throat> which we could say in the Hebrew is uh, at, right? Uh, the Lord at the right hand. Is that God at the right hand of the king? Well, there are other verse, other psalms that that David has spoken of where God is at his right hand. Therefore, David himself is not afraid because this is representational of the power of God. All right, so it's either one or the other. It's either God is at the right hand of the king or Messiah king is sitting at the right hand of God. And that, that plays into factors into which person you think is the Adonai. All right, so having said all that, we then jump through Matthew 22, where Jesus has this discussion with the Pharisees, and he challenges them, challenges them with this idea that if David calls this Messiah Lord, then how is it that this Messiah is David's son? And he opens by asking the Pharisees, Whose son is this Messiah? And they have sort of course they add he's David's son. And he says, Well then how come David calls him Lord? At the very least, the context of what Yeshua is saying or giving to them is this idea that the lordship of this Messiah, David's offspring, is greater than David. At least that's established. Obviously, this Messiah is an offspring of David. He's David's son in that regard. He's not David's immediate son, right? There's several generations past, obviously. But he's David's offspring. He's David's progeny. And so, we can say, generically speaking, he's the son of David. And yet, Yeshua says, David called him Lord. Now, this is a problematic for first century Jewish mindset, simply because, as it is in our day, the younger is not referred to in with greater respect to the older. Typically, the it's the other way around. The son refers to the father as Lord, or the lower references the greater as Lord, like in uh, Sarah referred to Abraham as Lord, lowercase l-o-r-d, because that was a title of respect for her husband, right? So, referencing a person as Lord in a human sense is the lower person giving that respect to the higher person. The person referred to as Lord is in a higher position than the lower person. Thus, you refer to that person as Lord. It's carried over into English today in, in British circles where we use the title Lord um, in England. We don't use it in America in the same way, but in England, of course, back in the day when there were Lords, and there still are Lords, I guess, in England, I'm not an expert in British uh, uh, titles, but from my understanding, when someone refers to someone else as Lord, well, then the one doing the reference is acknowledging that the person who wears the title Lord is higher than the person who speaks the title. But in David's case, David says Lord to the person who is chronologically younger than him, meaning his offspring. He comes after him. So it should be the other way around. It'd be like David referring to Solomon as Lord. Indeed, 
that should be the case if if that's all it was if the person who came after david is the king of israel and when david if david were still alive when solomon took the throne if that were the case that i'm describing then would david refer to solomon as lord because solomon is the king of israel is that what's going on well that isn't really what we read in the bible but david calls this person lord so yeshua picking up on that says how is it that david calls him lord I believe what's going on is that Yeshua knows that this title Lord was originally a title Adonai and not Adoni. And I'm going to show you why I think that's the case, even though it doesn't show up that way in the Hebrew. At least we don't know for certain that it shows up that way in the Hebrew because of the ambiguity of the spelling without the dots and the dashes. Remember, without the little dots and dashes, Adoni and Adonai are identical, just like they are in the Greek, kurios and kurios. There's no distinction between them. So the distinction was added by the Masoretic family tradition in dots and dashes up to, like I said, a thousand years after the Hebrew was already written, and certainly after the Greek was in use by Yeshua in the first century. So when Yeshua says to the disciples, to the Pharisees, why does David call him Lord? I think what Yeshua is alluding to is the fact that Lord in the first century was a title reserved for God, and it was not easily discussed in non-deity circles, except in very, very limited cases where like Sarah calls Abraham Lord, etc., etc. But the but when we're talking about the book of Psalms, there are three times off out of memory where David says, My Lord in Greek, Kudia Kudiomu, the Lord of me. And two of those times explicitly written in the um or the context explicitly demands that it's God the Father. The Lord of me, my Lord, my Lord God. And yet, somehow, in Psalm 110, suddenly he's referring to a human? Yeah, I don't think that's exactly what's going on. So when we look at Matthew 22 in the Greek, Matthew 22, 45, there's one verse that we're going to look at just briefly. Um, in English it says, and this is a transliter- trans, this is a uh, interlinear version, so the English is going to sound kind of goofy. Um, Verse 45 says, If therefore David calls him Lord, how son of him is he? That's woodenly rendered from the um from the Greek over into English. The Greek says, A un David kale auton kurian pas huias autu esten. Right? How does he call him Lord? And the reason we want to see this is because the word for Lord, if David therefore calls him Lord, is kurion, which is a form of the Greek word of kurios, which is identical to the tetragrammaton name when it's indicating the Lord God. And instead of saying Yahweh in the Greek, we end up using kurios. Why the Greek writers did that, we don't know. That's just their way of representing um, Yahweh in these, in these cases. When we get to the book of Acts, we find something similar. Let me turn over to Acts 2. Oops, let's use this rendering. Acts 2.36, uh, Peter's sermon at the uh, at Shavuot at Pentecost has this same sort of feature going on. He gives this big speech. He quotes Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord. And then his final um, comment on the passage is, Assuredly, therefore, let know all the house of Israel that both Lord him and Christ has made God this Jesus whom you crucified. So I know that's a little crazy to read. Um, if I drop down into the uh, English rendering uh, of verse 30, um, 36, 
Uh, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. You read it right there. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So stop for a minute and, and ask yourself, if according to biblical Unitarian, and if according to the Pharisees of Yeshua's day, which were non-Trinitarian, if according to both of these groups, Christ is a human figure, right? Follow along with me. If that's what Messiah represents, a human king of Israel, then what is the emphasis of Peter saying that therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's both human and human? This Jesus whom he crucified? Now I know I'm reading a bit into this, but I think it's a safe reading in because I believe what Peter's doing is he's emphasizing the that there are two aspects about this Jesus that they were not catching and he says this right on the heels of his quotation, you see it here, from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So I think what Peter is really getting at is that, therefore, let me just tell you, let me just kind of give the um, uh, explanation, commentary. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both divine and human. He is both the divine king of Israel and the human king of Israel, Christ, the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified, i.e., when we say God made him, we're not talking about that God whipped him up and fashioned him like a construct, like he created humans at the beginning on day six, like he made man out of the dust of the ground. We're not talking about the Jehovah's Witness version of Jesus, where God, where where Jesus is the first of God's created creatures. That's not what I mean, and I don't think that's what Peter means when he says God made him Lord and Christ. Right? God created him. That's uh, that's not the uh, import of Peter's uh, statement, but. Um, what we can find out when we look at the Greek here, and I'm, I'm showing you the Greek on purpose, the Greek says, Asphalos un genusketo, pas oikos Israel, hati kai kurion auton, kai kriston epoyasin hotheos, tuton ton yesun han hemes estarosate. Now, the Greek is emphatic for us for this reason. You don't see this in this particular Greek um, script, but the reason I read the Greek is because. Well, for two reasons. One, he says um, that uh, God, that uh, God has made him both Lord, and he uses the Greek word kudion, which is identical to what Yeshua said. If, there, if therefore David calls him kudion, you can see it right there. I've highlighted it for you. If David calls him kudion, which is identical to what uh, Peter says, also that God made him. Kudion. And Kudion, of course, is Strong's number 2962, which is rooted in the Greek word for kudios. In fact, I'll just click on it so you can see it. Um, open it up in a new screen. And there you have it, Strong's number 2962. The Greek word is kudios, right? That's the root word. So this root word, kudios, which is translated lord or mastered, lord or master or sir, is the same word that is the Greek choice of representing the Tetragrammaton name of God, YHVH, Yahweh, kudios. It's the same word. So what we end up with by the time of the Greek era, the writing of the Bible into Greek, when the Christians encountered the Greek scriptures, they had been given a very 
uh, what, what should we say, convenient way of bringing Jesus into their understanding of the Incarnation, whereas originally God was only understood to be um, deity in the unique sense from the Tanakh perspective, from the Old Testament, because the Incarnation had not yet happened and because it was a mystery that was hidden from humans by God himself. God veiled the incarnation and veiled the mystery of the three persons of God from humans until such a time as his son would be brought into the world, and the fullness of his deity would rest upon his son, like Paul talks about in both Colossians as well as uh, Ephesians. The fullness of deity dwells in the person of the son, and therefore we can confidently say that Jesus is fully divine. John gave us that revelation in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, where the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Where the word theos there, God, is a representation of the Word was deity. In the beginning was the Word, where was God, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word was fully deity. He was divine. He possessed all the same nature that God possessed because He is God uh, uh, in nature. So, he lacks nothing that God the Father lacks, that he has. That's why we can say that uh, the fullness of deity dwells in him. Well, and no human does that. So, when we get to this word kudios in the Greek, what we end up with is when we, by the time of the Christian writings to, to take place, you know, the New Testament to be penned, they had walked and talked with Jesus. They had experienced his deity. They had understood his sayings, at least, and some of, sometimes limited. Sometimes it was still um, veiled to them, meaning their eyes still had to be opened. I mean, it was, a, it was a growth period. It was a learning experience. But by the time the New Testament, uh, by the time the Holy Spirit prompted the New Testament writings to, to, to be um, written down, you know, Paul writing most of the letters, and then we have the, the Gospels and things like that, and the other writers, Peter and Timoth uh, Peter and, and Jude and, and, and other writers, well, the idea of Jesus as fully deity was settled, i.e., they were experiential Trinitarians. They understood that Jesus was divine, even if it was something that was quite scandalous to most Jewish people and something that was quite revelatory to the rest of humanity. I mean, a God walking among men as a, in, in a flesh suit, how does that work out? So, Jesus becomes known as divine, and the word kudios lends itself to this incarnational property of the divine God taking on humanity, and the word kudios, where, when it's co-opted, is adopted by the Christians to reference Jesus so that he's connected to the divinity of God, his Father, and yet at the same time, he's truly and fully human at the same time. So, that's why I said, I believe that the... Um, uh, let me turn to it again. The I guess I'll pull it in the English here. The Christos part in the Greek represents his uh, humanity, as it were, and yet the Lord, the kudios part, uh, hints or references his divinity. All right. So many of you are saying, "Well, that's a that's a bold claim, Ariel. How can you substantiate that from any textual evidence at all?" Well, actually, I think I can. But I'm going to put you on. I'm, I'm going to leave you in a cliffhanger. Pick this up next week. Um, I keep mentioning that. Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll go ahead and give you a little teaser, a little sneak peek. But you're not going to get much. <laughs> when we begin to peel back some of the discussions that take place in today's modern 
theological circles, we find that there is every reason to suspect that the scribes, the ancient Masoretes, altered the Hebrew text to make it, make it fit their own theology. Many places where it said um, Yahweh, and there was more than one Yahweh in view, or in context, more than one Yahweh, but, but not more than one God, meaning there was more than one person, but not more than one being. Just like when God said, let us make man in our image, and then it goes on to say that, so God created man in his image, right? When you put those two verses back together, the only conclusion that you can safely come to that fits with the rest of the Bible is that there's one God and yet there's more than one person. Let us make man, and then God made man. It doesn't say God and them. God and the angels didn't make man. God and the heavenly host didn't make man. God and God made man. Who's the other God? Well, there is no other God. There's only one God, and yet it's God and the other. It's the persons of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They had this discussion about the creation of man. Well, when we're looking at how the scribes, uh, the ancient Masoretic families and the Sophorim, um, how they interacted with the uh, Trinity, the, 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 what we might call the, the uh, tipping of God's hand into this idea of, of um, a multipersonal God, one God yet multiple persons. Remember, it was it was veiled in mystery, but God tipped his hand just a little bit every now and then, gave us little hints, little glimpses with the angel of the Lord and the the um, the captain of heaven's armies and the God manifesting himself in in human form. The what we might call the Theophanies and the Christophanies. Those are what I call God tipping his hand just a little bit without explicitly telling us like he does the New Testament. But what did the scribes do with that? The ancient Jewish scribes, they they went into a tailspin, right? It made their head spin because this this just it 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 couldn't they couldn't fathom that the one God was multiple persons, and so they would alter the text. They would change what was originally written to fit their own theology of there's this strict monotheism. So they changed Yahweh into Adonai a few times. Um, they took out Yahweh where where it shouldn't be. They uh, where what they thought it shouldn't be, where it, where it did exist, but they didn't think it did. So there are ways that Psalm 10 most likely was altered. We'll talk about that in time. Although sadly, we don't have any definitive proof where we have um, Hebrew texts that show what the original of Psalm 110 said without the vowel markings. But what we do have is Greek surviving manuscripts that were where, where there were translations from the Hebrew into the Greek. So we don't have the Dead Sea Scrolls that re, that show the original Hebrew like we do with other passages. The worms ate up Psalm 110. But we do have the Greek, like the uh, Codex Sinaiticus, um, that has been preserved for us where the Greek rendering has this peculiar feature that I'm going to mention here in a moment. But eventually we'll get to that. So we got um, a Psalm of David written by EnduringWord.com, which is a commentary by Dave, Pastor David Guzik, who's a Christian. We'll read that in time. We have um, a article by Dr. James Brown, and I'm sorry, Dr. Um, Michael Brown, a prominent Messianic apologist, uh, where he talks about how he deals with the objection that Psalm 110 does not say Messiah is Lord. That um, objection there that you see on your screen is um, a reflection of a traditional rabbinic Jewish objection to this particular issue. We'll read that in time. And then, this is the part that's going to really be kind of fascinating for some of you. We're going to begin to look at um, answering Psalm 110 from the uh, Masoretic and the Dead Sea Scrolls and begin to turn our, our attention towards some of the original 
uh, manuscripts once again and um, show how that, and you ready for this? We'll show how that, well, there's Tim Haig's article about the Tetragrammaton and how that the word Lord in Yeshua's day had begun to be utilized by Christians to reflect the nature of divinity that Yeshua was known to have. And it starts with the Tetragrammaton and works its way towards Kudios. We'll get to that in time. But um, the uh, thing I decided I would show you, eventually, earlier, I wasn't going to show this to you guys, but I decided I will this time. The sacred names, the nomina sacra in early Christian manuscripts. And so what is the nomina sacra? What we're going to find out is that it is the, let me turn to it here, it is the um, feature of the Greek copies from the Old Testament and the New Testament into Greek into a form of script known as um, unseal. And this this writing, I believe I'm saying, I believe I'm pronouncing it right, unseal, U-N-C-I-A-L, unseal, unshul, I believe it's probably what I should say, unshul. And this um, unshul, I don't, I think, I don't think it's unshul, but unshul writing, it looks like all capital Greek letters. Doesn't have small Greek, some uppercase and lowercase Greek, like say this. What you're seeing on your screen right now is not um, unshul. This is a different form of Greek. I can't remember the name for it, but this is like uppercase, lowercase, where you have capital letters and lowercase letters. But in the uh, Codex Sinaiticus, like you can see on your screen right now, I know you can't see this very well. Um, let me see if I can blow just that part up for you real quick. There you go. Um, when I blow it up, you can see that, uh, I mean, you, you don't know what you're reading unless you can read Greek, but it looks like all capital letters. Well, there's this odd, clever little feature that the Christians and the writers of the Greek would do to the name of God or the divine names, that's the nomina divina, 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 or nomina sacra, the sacred names like God's name, Yahweh and Elohim and Adonai and things like that. And what they would do is they would um, abbreviate the name to just the first letter, last letter, or sometimes the first two letters of the name. And then they'd put this little um, line, a uh, horizontal line across the top of the two letters. And so this was kind of like a shorthand for them to indicate that this was the name not to be pronounced. It's similar to almost the sacred name being um, uh, shortened in Hebrew writings to Yud Yud or something like that, or Hashem, so it's like a circumlocution feature uh, where the writers didn't write out the divine name, they just they, they abbreviated it with two letters or something like that. Well, the same thing happened in the Greek, except um, using Greek letters. So, in so doing, when we got to those references where in the New Testament where Yeshua's used, Yeshua's referenced as um, Kurias, guess what they did? At least the the the, um, the the Christian writers when they we're talking about Christian authors of the Old and New Testaments. Guess what they did? Because Greek, because the, the Jews weren't translating the, the 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 New Testament. Only Christians were. But when the Christian writers translated the New Testament and the Old Testament, when that when they were translating Yahweh into Greek, they used the word kudios. But when they got to Lord Jesus, they used the same word kudios like the Greek translation already did, they use the same word kudios to refer to Lord Jesus, Lord, kudios, for Adonai. But guess what they did? They put the little markings in the name that indicated that it was divine, not just human. We'll get to that in time. All right, so that's where probably, now I realize this represents a commentary on the Greek New Testament, just like the Masoretic scribal dots and dashes represents a commentary from a human perspective. So we don't know for certain that this is 
proof positive, slam dunk, that this means Jesus is divine. But what it does give us is a very early peek at the, some of the earliest and oldest Greek manuscripts that were being circulated <clears throat> Excuse me. They were being utilized by the Christians of that day, like we're talking um, for uh, uh, second century and, and later, second, third, and fourth centuries, etc. Much earlier than the Masoretic scribal tradition, and much earlier than obviously our English representations. But it shows us that the Christians had already begun to think of Jesus as divine and understand him to be divine based on this edition. And then we'll close out with an article from the website thehumanjesus.org. Um, Adonai or Adonai, we do know. This individual, I believe, has reached out to me more than once. Once through my YouTube uh, ch uh, channel by commenting on one of my videos and asking me, well, how do we know about Adonai and Adonai? And whether we know it's even Adonai or Adonai, if both of them are in question, how do we know which one's which? And I haven't answered them yet. And then I think he sent me an email, if I remember, just this week, asking me if I was open to a debate, a Trinitarian debate between he, between him and his non-Trinitarian um, uh, um, outfit there, uh, group there. So we'll see. I haven't decided whether I'm going to go into a debate with him. But um, we'll get to his article in time. So that'll do it for Trinitarian Response to Biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and uh, I am thankful for the study, and I'm also thankful that we're right on the heels of the fall festivals because this brings us into a time of year where we can stop and take inventory of our lives and of our hearts and ask ourselves, are we focused on you, Lord? Are we living a life as, as the late, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Le Leonard, uh, Lynn, Leonard, uh, the Leonard Ravenhill once quoted, and I'm I'm not saying it correctly, but Leonard Ravenhill is quoted as saying something to the effect of, "Is the life you're living, is life you're living for worth Jesus dying for?" And I'll I'll flash a little thing on the screen for those of you who can see it, so you can see the quote: "Is the life you're living for worth Jesus dying for?" Lord, during these fall festivals, I have to stop and ask myself that same question: Is the life I'm living for worth Jesus dying for? If the answer is no, then I'm, in, I'm the one who has a problem. I'm the one who's in error. I need to align myself with your life and with your ideals and with your um, uh, uh, preferences and with your um, program so that I can be a vessel that's chosen and usable and utilized by you for your kingdom, for your glory. And so uh, thank you, Lord, for this challenge. And thank you for the fall festivals and what they represent. Be with us as we go our separate ways. Um, bless us, protect us, provide for us, and bring us back together next week. And we'll be, be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Oh,